welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Oakland-based artist Evan Holm joins us today. Evan's work explores themes including the relationship between nature and technology, human beings and machines, the observations of passing time. In his recent works, he's looked for ways in which an audience could interact and engage physically with the works, pianos that draw with ink on paper when played, for instance. He had a recent solo show at the Berkeley Arts Center and has an upcoming show in May at the Vessel Gallery in Oakland. Evan, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be invited here. You have some really beautiful and fascinating things uh, going on in your work that I definitely want to ask about and explore. But I always like, uh, right up top of the show here, to kind of go back in time a little bit, closer to the beginning of your artistic life. And um, for you, I, I read that you were originally trained, at least in part, as an engineer. Uh, and that's kind of an interesting combination. So how did you make the transition or... Uh, from how did you make the transition from engineer to artist, or choose between the two? Um, oh, sure, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, I went to, well, actually, uh, let me go back before before college. Um, when I was applying to colleges, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, although I knew I loved to make things with my hands. Um, so during that process of decision, I would decided that possibly engineering would be a good field to go into, even though at the age of 18, I really didn't know what that meant for me. Uh Um, So I applied to tons of schools um, and was accepted to UC Santa Cruz um, and UC Berkeley in this pretty interesting um, dual degree program where I would be majoring in art at Santa Cruz and then wrapping up my uh, undergraduate with a engineering degree at UC Berkeley. Hmm. Um, so that's how I got off. Uh, that's how I got off on that path. Okay, and you said you like to make things with your hands. So were you um, were you already working, uh, making things as a as a high school student and exploring sc- sculpture and working with your hands at that point, or did did that something? Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, I was. I mean, it, actually, that kind of goes way back. Even even in childhood, my favorite thing to do was always making things. Um, Oftentimes, my chores around the house were, were um, you know, along with taking out the garbage and stuff, I would also be laying brick patios or building brick walls or building fences around the house. So it now, was always my, one of my favorite things to do. Now, were your uh, parents uh, creatively interested artists at all, or uh, did they? how did they encourage um, that for you? Or um, Yeah, my dad is a maker. Yeah, my dad is a maker of things. Um, we had a wonderful little, tiny little uh, workshop in our basement, um, just big enough to to make lamps and um, chairs and whatnot. Um, and then he would always help us. You know, he would be, he would do home home projects all around the house. So did you um, did you follow through with the the engineering part of this uh, study? Um, I, I did not, and actually that was one of the better decisions I've made in my, in my life, I think. <laughs> um, I was, um, the way that the um, program was structured is that I, would, I was planned, I was supposed to f- fulfill most of my um, art requirements at Santa Cruz while doing some prerequisites for the engineering 
degree. So at Santa Cruz, I was um, doing mostly art classes, and then in addition to that, doing um, doing some math like calculus, um, vector calculus, linear algebra, and I was just having so much fun in my art classes. They were consuming all of my all of my time, all of my energy, and the um, the math classes just started to be more and more daunting, more and more difficult. Um, and I just remember I had a bit of a moment of clarity, and and I think I was in. I think it was linear algebra. I think that's what that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I just decided that um, I wanted to devote all of my time to art making, and so um, so I removed myself from the engineering part of the program and then just did full time art. Wow! And so, uh, and you're based. You're still based in California. So, uh, did some of the connections that you made in school maybe with other colleagues, did that help you to establish yourself there in um, in Oakland or in Berkeley? Or where did you start? Uh, how did you make the connections to get started? Yeah, actually, it was directly from um, from uh, school at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I, I live and um, work in, in Oakland and have been here for about eight years. Um, UC Santa Cruz is... Um, is situated in the town of Santa Cruz, which is a small beach town about an hour and a half south of here. And in my senior year at Santa Cruz, I, I remember asking one of my um, professors and mentors, I asked her, well, wh- where do I go after this to go make art? And um, she happened to live in Oakland, and she recommended it. She said, go, go up to Oakland. You can find um, really cheap studio space. There's a small community of artists up there. Um, so just on the whim, without really knowing the city very well, I moved up here eight years ago. So um, at, from, you know, uh, part of the interest for me in doing this podcast is that I come from the music world. And so uh, the art world is uh, a little bit mysterious to me, uh, intriguing, but mysterious. And, and I don't really understand mm-hmm. how one gets started, uh, you know, making, uh-huh. a, uh, getting in, I mean, were you invited by gallerists to exhibit work or how does, how did your first, uh, you know, your first steps in that world, uh, come about? Oh, sure. Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I'm glad you said that because the music world for me is mysterious too. <laughs> <laughs> I could ask you, I really could ask you the same question. Okay. And it's, uh, the, music, the music world is one that I've always been a little bit envious of. So, <laughs> But I, I do know the I do know the visual art world a bit better, so I could explain that. Um, and what, you wanted to know how I kind of first got my first steps into it. Yeah, yeah. How did you first get started? Uh, you know, getting invited to, uh, well, you know, do maybe your first solo show or your even just your first uh-huh. piece that was exhibited uh, publicly. How how does how does that happen? Uh. Bit by bit, and you know, bit by bit is pretty much how how it seems to have been working. Um, after undergraduate, I actually kind of uh, postponed my art making practice for for some time. Um, I, you know, I left undergrad. I think I applied to a couple of graduate programs. Um, I got denied from them, and then I just got confused for a bit. Um, started working a full time you know, earning money and not really knowing what I was going to do with, um, with this art degree. Um, and so I think I took a break from art making for a couple of years and then it took me that long to realize I really missed it and I really wanted it back in my life. So 
made a pretty dedicated effort to um, make space for it. Got myself a better studio, and, and um, without re- really any plan, I just started making it work again. Um, at that time in Oakland, there was a burgeoning um, art scene with a, just a few um, new galleries, um, a very small community, and it was small enough that uh, I knew uh, most of the gallery owners and um, a, a good amount of the artists, and we were all friends, and um, it was just a small organic scene, so I could ask to have work in a show and um, and put it in there. You know, oftentimes there's one piece or two piece, two yeah. pieces, and then it would just kind of grow from there. So what is your relationship to a gallerist um, at the beginning of your career versus, say, now as you're, you're becoming more and more established in your career? Have, have those relationships changed, or, or what, what is that relationship? Um, yeah, you know, they, they have changed a little bit. I, I think it's, um, they've been developing into more and more formal relationships and also more and more um, nurturing, I suppose. Okay. Um, curators and, and gallerists are, I've, I've really come to, to learn as my career is developing, are, they play the role of, of kind of, you know, as the gatekeepers and also the shepherds. They're, in the best of worlds, they are really there to support and help and nurture the artist in tons of, tons of ways. It really, it really takes a small team to, of people to produce, um, and show to the public one person's um, creations. Yeah, I, I'm I'm curious about this world, so I'd I'd love to hear more about <laughs> about how this uh, how these relationships are cultivated and and built from from the beginning. Um, yeah, let's see. Sometimes um, sometimes galleries have reached out to me. Um, oftentimes, I reach out to gal- gal- you know gallerists and curators. Um, half the time I hear no response, um, but I imagine it's the same in the music world. I, I, I think, you know, as an artist, you just have to put yourself, put yourself out there and not always get responses or get, or get, um, or get denied. Um, one of my teachers, one of my professors from undergrad, one of her best, um, recommendations was to start collecting your denial letters because they're going to stack up quite a bit faster than your acceptance letters. Yeah. We have uh, <laughs> a composer, a friend of mine who, will um will be a show before this one her name is Jennifer Jolly and she uh-huh. she has a blog that she calls why compose when you can blog and she has a whole series of uh posts called composer fails and these are basically photos of her rejection letters and the story of you know that particular rejection of applying for oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah so so she's made sort of a fun and creative jab at, at some of these uh you know some of these uh fruitless efforts sometimes you know we write all of these letters and uh grants or whatever and then let you know rejection yeah. after rejection so she's made a creative sort of response to it but yeah all i think all creative folks deal with some level of of rejection you know that might be something else yeah. to talk about is uh how you've mm-hmm. had to overcome rejection um, you know, you mentioned being rejected yeah. from graduate programs, but I'm sure there, there've also been, uh, you know, grants and this other type of thing. So how have you overcome, uh, have you been able to overcome rejection? I, I feel like, um, you kind of have a choice of which way to proceed after, uh, rejections because that's always going to happen to anyone in, in any creative field. Um, things are going to go 
one dire- a direction that you ne- not necessarily wanted it to go. Um, and I used to get really kind of down about it because the creative career is a very delicate one to build and nurture. And at any at any avenue, there's always ten reasons for you to stop it. Yeah. Um, uh, re- rejection is being you know being one of them. Um, but as I've um, gotten a little bit wiser and um, a little bit more seasoned in this career, I've really nurtured um, a response to rejections where. Uh, I've decided to just um, fortify my resolve whenever I, I get a rejection. So in an odd way, um, I actually welcome rejections because it, it makes me walk through them um, a little bit more determined to um, persevere and stay in this um, in this career. Yeah, that's a really positive way to look at them. Hi, everyone. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just wanted to drop in and ask that uh, if you are listening on iTunes, please do me a favor. Go back and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find and follow the show. Thanks. I was talking to my wife last night about, um, you know, because I've been talking to so many different kinds of artists and and creative people through this uh, show and, mm-hmm. and I yeah. just reflected on how different the worlds are, uh, how different the art world is from the music world. And I've had some friends that have, uh, well, in fact, my first show uh, on here was a composer mm-hmm. named Paul Schutte, who, uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. who sort of made the transition from the music world into more of an art world. And uh, yeah. the, uh-huh. the music world that, that I find myself in is this, pretty small uh, world of kind of experimental new music, um, you know, using, as I said, combining spoken texts and poetry with elements of theater and performance art. And um, it's a pretty small world and there's a pretty small audience for it. So it's it's not like, you know, the, the world of popular music, which is a whole different world, you know. So, so there's all these yeah. like, sort mm-hmm. of, uh, I don't know, concentric circles around musicians that you're going to be involved in this world and that world. And for a lot of musicians, it's about craft and what they do yeah. is, is so tied to their craft. And I, I think of the, uh, you know, the symphony orchestra, the orchestral musician as being kind of the, the top of that, uh, world of crafts people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I see, I see. As, as in as in individuals who are just hones of their technique to, near perfection yes and they're and, they're in the business of recreating a already existing repertoire you know they're not necessarily yeah. making anything new uh, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. you know my definition of the difference between an artist and a craftsperson is that the artist doesn't know what the end result will be they have an idea of what they think it might be but through the process of working that that changes likely um, oh, indeed, yeah. Right, that right. That's, well, yeah. that's the creative <laughs> process. Whereas an orchestral musician <laughs> who's playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, I mean, there are some choices to make about tempos, and there, there's a whole artistry of interpretation there that I, don't, yeah. I do not want mm-hmm. to discount by any stretch. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's mainly tied to recreating something that already exists uh, using the skills of your craft so yeah, I, f- I find indeed, myself in indeed. this. I, so I find myself in this really interesting 
place where what I'm really interested in is creating new work and making making things and working yeah. particularly mm-hmm. I find that I work best in conjunction with other artists either with poets or uh, visual artists or who you know uh, other creative folks who are interested in the collaborative spirit of creativity and but the world that I live in is really one of craft you know um, I, I mean I have a teaching mm-hmm. posi- I have a teaching position where I teach students how to um, play the snare drum and how to crash cymbals and play the xylophone and you know and the skills that are required to do so so I deal with craft on a day-to-day basis with my students but in my own work you know I feel like I've I've established the craft that I need and, and I maintain it but I'm really way more interested in making something new so I wonder if oh, yeah. I wonder <laughs> if there are parallels in what you do to kind of what I've described um, well, yeah, actually, um, what you say about about innovating and creating new, um, I can really respond to because at least in my section of the art world, um, innovation is in- encouraged and ex- expected, really. I mean, I feel like part of my job is to bring into existence something that either either has has never existed or is something kind of kind of new and you know, new to the public, and then um, it's my job with the help of curators and with the help of gallerists, and, that, and that's why their job is so important. With their help, and only with their help, then um, it gets presented to the public, to an audience. That's one of the things that I wish we had, uh, I don't want to say a better infrastructure, but more of an infrastructure for in the musical world is people that are curating um, concerts mm-hmm. yeah. or events and helping the musicians present that kind of work to the public because quite honestly I, I don't know that our music education system at the higher education level really prepares musicians for um, creative entrepreneurial um, I, I know that's probably a overused uh-huh. word <laughs> but uh-huh. Uh, but there, there have been some oh, recent movements, you know, in, in higher ed um, to, to get students to think about those skills, you know, how to put together uh, a concert series or how to form a chamber ensemble, these type of things. And, yeah. and there are people yeah. that, are, that are doing it. But by and large, uh, our, our schools of music are, are generally designed to create, uh, you know, 19th century ideas of, uh, of a musician. You know, you... you study and play the orchestral repertoire and we're we're basically training students to either audition for an orchestral uh career go into popular music or become teachers you know um there's a pretty small those people might argue with me out there but it seems to me a pretty small (laughs) sliver of institutions that are working uh, towards what you're talking about, which is innovation and bringing new ideas to audiences, uh, it's a pretty small world, I think. Sure, certainly, certainly. Well, perhaps the institutions aren't the best um, breeding grounds for, for <laughs> producing that. Producing that. <laughs> institutions, I, I yeah, I, no, you're exactly right. Institutions, by their very nature, are probably not. Yeah, so how do we, how do we as creative people uh, bring that about. 
That's a very good question. That's a very big question. <laughs> Maybe there's no good answer right now, uh, but uh, no, we're asking no. we're asking you know, the tough questions, though. That's that's what's important. That is a tough question. Um, that is the question. I just happened to actually be. Um, I was over at um, at my gallery at uh, Vessel Gallery yesterday. Um, I'll be having a show there in about three months, and I was talking with Lonnie, who uh, really wonderful woman. She is the gallerist and the owner there. Um, and we were talking about um, about grad school and um, academics, and how um, I don't know. Like I have a, I have a bit of a mild distrust of it. I'm not sure yet. I haven't really formed a strong opinion. There's definitely wonderful, wonderful professors out there and wonderful work coming out of um, institutions. Uh, but she mentioned to me um, this new program in Oakland um, put together by a composer and a painter, and they're doing a short. They're doing a series of short three-month um, workshops that, and for for very cheap, for about four hundred dollars, where um, creative folks and art, artists can sign up for it and go through a very intensive um, kind of studio seminar with these profession, professionals um, and leave uh, with uh, a bunch of critiques under their belt. Um, hopefully, having perfected their you know their 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 craft a bit. Yeah, that just kind of sounds like a really wonderful grassroots way of sidestepping institutions. So, Evan, I found your work through a film made by the production group Motion Poems. And this film combines your installation called Submerged Turntables, and it combines that installation with um, a W.S. Merwin poem called Antique Sound. And uh, and it's a beautiful little film, short film. But before we get into talking about that, maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about this very curious uh, and engaging piece, Submerged Turntables. Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, the Submerged Turntables is a installation that I, I first started about, um, I would say, three years ago, maybe in about 2011. Um, and the piece... It developed in, in about over about two years. What it contains, what what the, what the piece involves, is a large pool of ink, um, about eight feet long and four feet wide, um, that holds about fifty gallons of ink. Um, and then sitting atop of that pool is a thirteen foot tall branch structure um, with a bunch of lichen and moss and um, other living things on it. Um, and then Submerged underneath the pool of ink are two turntables um, that that spin, and when records are put onto them, um, the records hover just beneath the surface of the ink. Um, and when turning, they create these beautiful hypnotic um, whirlpools of black ink. And because the ink is black, you can't really tell where the vinyl begins and the liquid where the vinyl ends, sorry, and the liquid begins. Um, I was able to work through some technical difficulties with it and um, turn this thing into a, uh, a fully functional um, record player um, that that works um, actually just really quite wonderfully. And so with this installation, um, it turned into a bit of a, of a performance piece. Um, I would sit down next to the pool um, and play some of my... You know, favorite some of my favorite music, um, and then eventually I invited my wife to also 
perform with me, so she would join me with uh, vocals, and um, we also figure out how to put a uh, fretless zither underwater, um, so she would also play that, too. Hmm. So what kind of uh, music do you play on these on these records? Because I would imagine that the that decision is a pretty important one. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, that, it was an important one. Um, and one that I struggled in the formative year of making this piece. It was a decision that I really struggled with. I really wanted to find a, a voice for this installation. Um, so I started... Um, I, I think eventually I did find a voice for it. Um, I eventually played um, quite a bit of, I think you would call it kind of glitchy, um, down-tempo electronic music. Um, artists such as um, Jan Jelinek, he's... Um, a German electronic composer, um, Amon Tobin, too, um, and another group called Pan American. Um, those are all really wonderful, wonderful artists, and I recommend anyone to listen to them. What idea came first? The the idea of what would it sound like to have these submerged turntables, or did it come mm -hmm. from the visual, or was it you know how how was that all? How did that all come together for you? Um, I'm still trying to figure out oftentimes when where the genesis comes from for you know for my ideas. Um, I have some idea about this one though. I was I was actually at a concert of Iman uh, Tobin. He's a um, He's, also, he's an electronic composer, I think from born in Brazil, but I think he lives in France now. Um, and I was at a concert of one of his, and he had built this just elaborate and amazing sculpture on stage with um, with light projections on it. And his, um, I guess you could say his booth, his control booth, his DJ booth was built into the sculpture. Um, and it really kind of blew my mind because it was the first time I had seen a musician embrace uh, embrace a sculptural format and really fuse sound and sculpture together. Um, I was reviewing it as a sculptor and someone who always has always loved music and sound. So you know, I was I was in a, I was in the crowd and I was watching him and I was thinking, you know what? I I know how to make sculptures. I'd like to make a sculpture and invite music into it. You mentioned you know composers or or musicians that that. Um, have invited sculpture into their work, and of course, I th I immediately think of Harry Parch. That's the first thing that pops into my mind. You know, I've, I've never heard of him. I'd, I'd like to check him out. Oh, Harry Parch is one of the great American uh, original voices of the 20th century. Um, Harry Parch created a legacy of instrument building and designing uh, by hand these uh, absolutely stunning sculptures that are also um, beautiful uh, and interesting and fascinating uh, instruments. Anyway, just all kinds of, he made a lot of percussion instruments, but he also was interested in different kinds of tuning systems. 
and so uh-huh. he, he did a lot with string instruments early on in his career, adapting guitars to you know just intonation and all kinds of uh, different sort of tuning uh, systems, alternative tuning systems to equal temperament. Uh, famously, the other thing that you could check out um, is he wrote a book called The Genesis of a Music, which basically detailed his whole philosophical and practical approach to music and tuning systems and instrument building. But there's a whole, because of Harry Parch, then there's this whole uh, subculture that exists, uh, a lot of them in the U.S., but but uh, because I think I mean, Harry Parch was kind of the grandfather of this kind of thing, of instrument building and making your own instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, it's mm-hmm. it's a definitely a, a live and well, uh, even though it's sort of a small sect of people. Uh, but sure. it, it's definitely sure. it's definitely out there. And it's, it's, oh, fantastic. This sounds like a gentleman I need to know about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the visual aspect of his instruments was very, very important to him, and a lot of his pieces combined theater, and so the lighting and the costume design and all of that came into play. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. sorry, I digress. But uh, so this uh, this DJ, for lack of a better word, that you were interested in uh-huh. was was kind of combining sculpture in his performance, yeah. and yeah. so that mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. sparked this idea in you that that maybe uh, that could be an interesting element to to play with. Yeah, and I, and um, I still remember the, um, the moment in my studio to this day where um, where I got a Tupperware dish. Um, uh, you know, like a, a, a wide tray, um, filled it with water. And then I had found this old turntable at a, at a kind of a junkyard, this kind of urban reuse kind of, um, place over here in Oakland. Um, and I, I found the turntable there. Um, I tore out all the electronics. So it was just a mechanical turning device, I figured out a way to make it turn underwater. Um, and I, and I placed the turntable down under there. Um, got a refurbished tone arm from a different turntable and um, spun the thing. And I really wasn't sure what was going to happen when I put the needle under the surface of the water. Uh, but it was just a really wonderful moment of experimentation and um, yeah, and of of without really expecting any results, without knowing where this was going to lead me. But yeah. the, the needle did go under under the water, and um, and sound was actually able to come out of the whole contraption, um, albeit a little bit uh, warbly, a little bit funky, but um, it sounded, sounded come out, and it was just so promising that um, that was the beginning of it, and really um, that piece, you know, grew grew over the next couple of years to quite quite an elaborate um, installation that takes that takes a 20-foot moving truck to move that from, from venue to venue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, and and that mm-hmm. to, to come back to what we were saying earlier about the difference between an artist and a craftsman, there's a perfect example mm-hmm. of not knowing uh, what's going to happen, uh, just having a, a notion and an idea and going with it and, and seeing where it goes. Yeah. That's yeah. A, that's a yeah, beautiful, sir, a beautiful example of that, yeah. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, you know, um, that was... That was a very formative piece, actually, of mine because that was actually the first time where I really did embrace that format. Um, up until then, my sculptures have been, you know, sketched out to the highest detail. I mean, before, perhaps that isn't a true artistic method because, um, uh, in the, you know, in the past, my ideas would be drawn out to so much detail that 
I already knew what the end result was going to be before I started making it. Um, and that's, that's a little bit confining, actually, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and the turntable piece really was the first time when I didn't have any drawings. I just I just put a turntable underwater in a Tupperware dish um, and was so enthralled by the magic that was happening with it that I just went from there um, and without with really knowing, without knowing the end results from them. And that was fantastic. It's kind of like stepping into, well, like, like the name of your podcast, like stepping into the stream. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me, though, like there was a process of uh, learning to trust your instincts that happened through, you're saying your earlier work was uh, detailed, uh, sketches everything was sketched out in advance but so it seems like maybe that allowed you that process early on allowed you to trust your instincts and this is maybe the first time that uh that you allowed that trust to happen and and take a chance here uh sort of on trusting your instincts but maybe without the uh maybe you needed that that other work previous work the the heavy sketching and the detailed notes mm-hmm. and planning yeah. in yeah. order to get to a place where you could just trust your instincts that's that can be a a scary place for an artist uh, i think you know uh, it's scary enough making something and uh it takes a lot of bravery yeah. as i've said mm-hmm. before on the mm-hmm. show you know it takes a lot of bravery to put something out in the world uh, to some to some extent yeah, perhaps, and um, and actually, I think between those two modes of working, um, I'm really trying to to strike a balance between those two because there is a certain amount of uh, practicality uh, involved with art making, um, and there you you know there needs to be a certain amount of planning ahead, but then there has to there also has to just be this wonderful abandonment of of all of that of all logic and just get get wrapped up in the beauty of what you're making. So that's it's that's a, that's the kind of balance I'm always um, looking to perfect. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about how this uh, sculpture was used in this film. Uh, the film was produced mm-hmm. by uh, Motion Poems, and I have a mm-hmm. I have a sort of a small connection with the creators of Motion Poems. One of the creators of Motion Poems, the poet Todd Boss. He's a great. He's a great gentleman. He and I worked together on a couple of creative uh, projects combining music and poetry, some of which. Uh, came through to fruition and and some of which were just conversations and and interesting sort of collaborative ideas but Todd uh, is a very interesting poet and uh, Motion Poems has grown into a fairly large production team uh, and they put together (laughs) perhaps you can talk about a little bit what I know is that they put together these uh, short films uh, that combine Mm -hmm. sort of the art of filmmaking with poetry so how did you get connected with them? Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, Todd Boss. Well, I my um, my turntable sculpture. Um, some videos of it were posted on the internet and um, got a fair amount of exposure in the in the internet world. Um, however, however real or non-real that is, I'm not really sure. But perhaps a, a subject for a different um, interview. <laughs> um, but it did it uh, due to that exposure. Um, I think Todd came across my work. He's based out of Minneapolis. Um, and what what he does and what Motion Poems does is connect um, filmmakers with poets, oftentimes filmmakers, and in my case, a sculptor. This is the first time that they reached out to a installation artist or a, a sculptor. And so Todd uh, had this poem in mind um, called Antique Sound, uh, written by W.S. Merwin, who's just a, really a fantastic 
poet. Um, he was the uh, poet laureate of the United States, I believe, in 2010. As well as he's won a couple of Pulitzer prizes for his um, his work. So, really, just a, one, a wonderful body of work and a wonderful career. And Todd had this one poem of his in mind, Antique Sound. And he's been, for I think for the past couple of seasons, he's been wanting to connect this poem to an, to an artist or to a filmmaker. The poem happens to be about um, turntables, uh, about record players, about nostalgia, about boyhood, um, about growing older, about um, and about the changing landscape. And so when Todd came across my sculpture, which features a turntable which features records um, dipping beneath the surface of an inky pool. Um, he just felt like it was a, a perfect match. Um, so he reached out to me um, and asked me if I would like to to make a film adaptation of the poem. And we went from there. Great. So how involved were you with the filmmaking process? Um, oh, actually, um, I did all the filming myself. Oh, and wow. all, all the editing. Oh yeah, wow! Yeah, okay, I, I didn't know that. Of, I was kind of a yeah, I was kind of a one person um, one, one person production crew. So um, I set up I set up my um, turntables inside my studio at the time um, and and used the turntables uh, used my sculpture as uh, kind of like a set as a landscape for the um, for the film adaptation. Um, as part of my contract, I was uh, required to present them with a storyboard um, and also some kind of concept sketches and some Im- imagery. So um, so I developed a, a storyboard, which is a very new skill for me. I, and I had never done one of those before. And ran it by um, Todd Boss and ran it by Motion Pump, ran it by um, W.S. Merwin. Um, and everything was approved, so... I went ahead and set up uh, a small film studio, I suppose, in my in my sculpture studio. I set up my um, installation, borrowed a really nice video camera from a good friend of mine, um, and filmed for about two or three days. Um, and then with that, I brought that back to my home and then um, uh, did all the editing uh, using Final Cut Pro. Let's now listen to the audio from Evan's film, Antique Sound, which was produced by Todd Boss and all the good people at Motion Poems. It features W.S. Merwin's poem, Antique Sound, also read by the poet himself. The film is available on Evan's website, evanholm.com, and make sure you uh, look up motionpoems.com as well. Here it is, Antique Sound. There was an age when you played records with ordinary steel needles which grew blunt and damaged the grooves or with more expensive stylus tips said to be tungsten or diamond which wore down the records and the music receded. 
But a friend and I had it on persuasive authority that the best thing was a dry thorn of the right kind. And I knew where to find one, off to the left of the Kingston Pike, in the shallow swale that once had been forest and had grown back into a scrubby wilderness, alive with an earthly choir of crickets, blackbirds, finches, crows, jays, the breathing of voles, raccoons, rabbits, Foxes, the breeze in the thickets, the thorn bushes humming a high polyphony, all long gone since to improvement. But while that fine dissonance was in tune, we rode out on bicycles to break off dry thorn branches, picking the thorns, and we took back the harvest and listened to Beethoven's Rasumovsky quartets echoed from the end of a thorn. Okay, we're back, and uh, I should also mention that uh, folks want to, people that are interested to see more of your work and, and see films and, and uh, learn more can go to your website, evanholm.com. I'll make sure and put a link in the show notes uh, on my website, and, uh, and anything else that you'd like to link to, uh, we'll, we'll find, that, uh, find that there on my website. One of the motivations for me in making these podcasts is exploring my interest in this intersection of various artistic practices. I think as as we spoke off the air about um, maybe the, this podcast works best when it feels like a conversation, you know, uh, about mm-hmm. about these mm-hmm. about these things, and we sort of just get into what we're passionate about and what we're interested in. But I kind of find in my own work to my own work is at this intersection between music, poetry, theater, uh, performance art, it combines all of those things. So I'm, I'm real interested in that space where artists work in more than one medium. And, uh, As I am too. Yeah, I really am also. So you shared with me uh, some documentation on a piece that you're developing, a new piece called Cloud Clock. And this uh, piece combines elements of sculpture, uh, sound, music, spoken texts, and I have to say that it looks 
really interesting and absolutely stunning, just what I saw the short video that you sent me. I hope I get a chance to see it live, but uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about it and uh, how you are working with music and texts and, and about your creative process for this, uh, for this new piece. Oh, certainly. I'd uh, be, be happy to explain that for a little bit. And, um, and I'll be showing this piece May 21st in Oakland. So, um, if you're in Oakland, you're, I've got a, I've got a guest room you can stay at trash <laughs> here. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, yeah, this piece is, uh, the working title at least right now is called Cloud Clock. Um, and it is a large scale installation. Um, right now the, the dimensions are about 20 feet by 60 feet long. Um, it's primarily made out of plywood that has been cut into a very lace-like um, pattern that hangs from the ceiling. Um, and then beneath the the lacy structure are these wooden wheels that I've made, modeled after um, wool spinning wheels from the Amish. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those with those old machines where you would step on a pedal and it would spin a wooden wheel slowly about, actually actually pretty quickly about, and I don't know how it works, but it was able to um, spin wool into long threads that's used for sweaters and knitting and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. so a spinning wheel, yeah. For, yes, a wool spinning wheel, yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I made, um, I mean, to this installation, I'm making about 10 of those, um, and they're actually turned onto their horizontal um, and then assembled a little bit like uh, clock gears, mm-hmm. um, um, but then instead of instead of wool being spun around the wheels, there's uh, cassette tape um, being spun around the wheels, um, and then the cassette tape actually activates the wheels and turns them in this very very kind of hypnotic and slow um, trajectory, as if it's a clock spinning. And then uh, to, to finish it off on. Uh, on top of um, the entire installation, um, I've sifted about uh, 500 pounds of baker's flour on top of it, and that turns the whole color spectrum to kind of a, a really wonderful um, white, off-white color, and creates a sense of, of delicateness and almost ephemeralness, and really makes the the structure look like a cloud and a clock. Clock. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. The the white dust, how it's collected, and in on the top you have sort of a how would you describe the thing that that overlays the um, the wheels that's up, it's hovering above the wheels suspended from the ceiling. Yeah, it's sort of um, an organic um, looking. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, maybe you can describe. Yeah, it. Yeah, I know it's 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 difficult on the radio. Huh, to yeah, describe <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That 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 part of it, um, that hovering part, um, I think of it a, a bit like a cloud, or also a bit like a mountain range. Um, when I, I was looking at quite a bit of imagery um, before building building that part of the of the installation, and I, on the internet I looked at quite a lot of images of snowy uh, mountainscapes, like the Alps and and um, the Rocky Mountains and the Cascades. Um, I also looked at um, images of desert um, floors, especially those 
dried up um, desert lake beds yeah. where the yeah exactly where the um, oh yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about where, I the, know exa- where the mud the mud cracks into this wonderful geometric pattern yeah that's exactly um, what it looks I, like only where the where where it's just just the framework of that made made yes, wood. indeed yeah. yeah just the framework of that yeah I'm, I'm hoping that your listeners are starting to get a picture of that and uh, I also looked at quite a lot of um, uh, cloud formation pictures too um, because clouds come in a, a busy array of patterns um, and I found some that are are reminiscent actually of, of mountainscapes and also of that cracked desert floor so I did my best to assimilate um, all of those different landscapes into into a structure that's you know, like as I said, about twenty feet by sixty feet long um, that hovers above the floor. And can you talk a little bit about the sound element of this piece and how that how that plays? Yeah, yeah, certainly I will. Um, you know, on on the previous um, piece that we we described, um, the turntables, I chose. Um, I chose vinyl records as the as a medium as a as a as a sound recording technology to use. Um, on this one, I've shifted over to cassette tapes, and I'm thrilled about that because um, I, I'm finding this platform to be just full of full of possibilities. With with um with vinyl records, um, it was cost prohibitive for me to record my own content onto the onto the vinyl. Um, so, mm-hmm. but with um, cassette tape, oh my goodness! I mean, that, this this is uh, it's essentially free for me, and um, and I can put digital files onto onto cassette tape. So it's it's really limitless, really what I can what I can experiment with and what I can what I can put onto this. Um, so the so as I described earlier, the um, the cassette tape is taken out of its the out of its plastic housing um, and. As and spun onto the wooden wheels as as though the uh, as though the, the wool yarn would be spun onto it. Um, and I'm going to be putting um, content onto that. Uh, so when viewers come and see the installation, they will be seeing the clock gears move. Um, and also, there's going to be various speakers set up throughout the room, and it will be playing back the content. The video project that is with Antique Sound was the first time that I interacted with, with poetry and with the spoken, you know, human voice and spoken word. And that was just such a, a, a moving and such a powerful experience for me that uh, when I moved into this uh, cloud clock structure, I knew I wanted to have narrative, a, a narrative element onto it, on it um, as well as music. Um, so this machine um, actually has five tracks on it. It'll have five tracks, and each track is going to be between 10 minutes to 20 minutes long, so quite a bit of content on it. Um, I'll be able to have about an hour and a half or so of, um, of audio content. Some of those tracks is going to be sound elements, um, some of it verging on music, and then some of it is going to be uh, stories, which I'm going to collaborate with from the public. I'm not sure who yet I'm going to invite onto this, but I'd, I'd really like to have this have um, have narrative stories on it. Wonderful. So- sounds like a really uh, interesting project. Uh, best of luck to you on finishing that project and bringing it to fruition in 
May, correct, at the Vessel Gallery in Oakland? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, May 21st. May 21st. Is the, uh, is the first opening, yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, I think we're uh, going to move into some closing thoughts here. I mentioned in the last episode that uh, I've just discovered this book by Sharon Loudon called Living and Sustaining a Creative Life, which is a book of essays, uh, 40 essays by working artists about how they live and sustain their own creative lives. lives. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to read a quote to you and, and kind of get your response and your, your advice. Uh, there's a line by Amanda Church... And, it, and she says this, I think every artist dreams of living off the sales of their work, but all too often this dream does not become a consistent reality and alternatives need to be found. And yet, creativity also applies to this search for a viable way to earn a living and still maintain enough time and energy to focus on making art. So based on that quote, uh, perhaps a reaction from you to that and any advice or anything you'd like to say about how to make and sustain a creative life. Oh, certainly. And um, that, that um, quote by Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Church really just speaks volume because it has been a constant struggle to, to balance um, ways of earning income and ways of... Um, just committing myself to hours of studio time, which is the foundation of a of a good art career, and it's it's hard. I'm 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 about um, ten years into this endeavor right now, and only just now I'm starting to um, get established uh, enough so that I do have some financial um, income, you know, some some income coming in from my art pursuits. Um, but I would encourage anyone that's that's entering into this endeavor to uh, not to be discouraged, but to take a realistic look at at um, the next five or ten years and realize that in all likelihood you're not going to get a whole lot of um, financial remuneration for some time off of your pursuits. I think it's important to be realistic about that. That's on the more practical note, but on on a on a little bit more um, soulful and less practical note, which is the heart of an art making practice. I just really want to let people know that um, that my own practice has added quite a bit of of depth to my life, um, and I, I really would wouldn't do anything else. I mean, it's just it's, it's really added quality to to my life. So um, it's an important practice, and I you know, I really hope that anyone listening that is has maintained a practice that they continue doing so. Terrific. Thank you so much, Evan. Those are those are really great uh, closing thoughts there. I think. Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure to uh, speak with you today. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream: Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com. And follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>